Father, we, we praise you and thank you for just who you are and, and what you have done on our behalf, um, sending your son to, to die for our sins so that we can be made in, made to be in right relationship with you, Lord. Pray that we, we don't take that truth for granted. Um, and we do pray as we, we open up your word this morning in this Sunday school class to, to, to learn about the Old Testament text that we, would, that we would love your word, that you would grow our desire to read your word and to, to understand the meaning that you, you have for us in your word. And pray that we would submit ourselves to the truth contained in your word. Um, and we do also pray for our upcoming service, that it would be glorifying to you and edifying to your people. Um, pray that that you would prepare our hearts even now to receive your word preached to us in our service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're, we are going to begin our study in the second book of the Old Testament, um, what is called the Prophets. Remember that, that Dempster in his book, he's following the, the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament. So by second book, I, I just said that. I'm not talking about Exodus. I'm talking about the, the tripart books of the Old Testament that Dempster's following, which is called the, the Tanakh. This is the, just the Hebrew ordering of um, the Old Testament. And so following the Tanakh ordering, with the, with the ending of Deuteronomy, we have ended the book of the Torah, the book of the law, um, which is what we typically call the, the Pentateuch. And today we're going to start off with the book of Joshua, which begins the second book of the Old Testament called the Prophets. And the Prophets have two subdivisions, if you're visualizing in your head or taking notes, two subdivisions um, between the, the, the former Prophets, which consists of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, so the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and the latter prophets, which contains Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the 12 um, smaller prophetic books, the Book of the Twelve, as it's called. So these later prof pro prophetic works are, are what we typically think of and, and refer to when we say the prophets, but in the Tanakh, the book of Ju Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, Kings are considered the former prophets, so don't be confused if you hear prophet language with these books. And so what we see um, in these former prophets is the storyline we've been, we've been tracking through the Torah is continued from the, the conquest of the promised land all the way to the exile from the land in Babylon. That, that's kind of the broad scope of the story that we see in the former prophets, and and thus, with, with the end of Kings, with the end of the book of Kings, comes the completion of the, of the first half of the Old Testament. The first half of the Old Testament. And Dempster notes that we can see a point of connection, right? If you're still skeptical of the Tanakh ordering, he's going to offer more evidence um, to give us a clue that, that Joshua is viewed as a start of a new book. As, as the first chapter, so to speak, and Malachi, Malachi, which would be the, the, last, the last later prophetic work, later prophet text 
um, is viewed as the end of a book. And that connection is found in the beginning of Joshua. We see a reference back to the death of Moses and an emphasis on the importance uh, to, of, of obedience to Moses' law, right? We see that in Joshua 1. And the very end of the book of the prophets in Malachi 4, 4 through 6, we see the, the same exact, very similar emphasis of urging the necessity of remembering the law of Moses. Um, this is just, right, this one point of connection, just one clue again um, for us as readers that the beginning of Joshua and the end of Malachi have this linguistic and, and thematic connection, which indicates to us, right, it should indicate to us, um, a connection between these two texts. And the argument is that the, the connection being the beginning and endings of the book of the prophets, right? The, the, the second book of the Old Testament. So just a brief overview um, before we jump into Joshua of the, of the former prophets. So we find in these narrative accounts, we find the, the conquest into the land, into the promised land, right? And then we see the, the events leading up to kingship in Israel, Right, we see that in the book of Judges. And then we, we see the, the ups and downs that come with the, with the institution of kingship, right, which, which tragically ends in the death of the nation as they're, they're exiled out of the land. And we see that chronicled in Kings. So the book is full of the, the just amazing narratives, amazing stories. There's quite a bit of drama and conflict and tension and um, it's just very entertaining to read. Not that it's just merely entertaining, but it is well written and entertaining. Um, And what we see from a big picture perspective of putting the whole Old Testament together as one book is that Israel fails to, to live up to the obligations they agreed to in, in the covenant with Yahweh made at Sinai, right? Made in, in, that we saw all the way back in Exodus. So it's what we call the, the Old Covenant. And, and Dempster quotes in his book the, the scholar Meredith Klein. He's a very influential scholar in the Reformed evangelical world. Meredith Klein, and Klein says... From the beginning of Israel's history until its end, the people's behavior could be characterized as the non-fulfilling of the covenant. Right? From the beginning of Israel's history until its end, the people's behavior could be characterized as the non-fulfilling of the covenant. And so what we see at the, the end of the former prophets is that Judah is destroyed by the, by the Babylonian armies with its inhabitants either dead or, or in exile. And so tracking along with the, the theme and story of the seed of the serpent and, and the seed of the woman that we saw introduced in, in Genesis, by the end of the former prophets, right? if we're just reading them in isolation, by the end of the former prophets, by the end of the book of Kings, the promise that the seed of the woman would, would triumph over the seed of the serpent, that promise, right, to, re, to restore humanity to its lost royal glory, 
that promise seems almost dead in the narrative, which is important for us to remember. Dempster argues that by the end of the former prophets, it's a very hopeless scene for the people of Israel, which is just helpful as we, as we start this book, as we start Joshua, to be reminded how it's going to end, which is going to be in tragedy. So let's move on to, to Joshua. Joshua, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, is full of the theme that we've been tracking in this series of dominion, right? The book is a book of largely conquest. It's chronicling the conquest the Israelites are, are, are doing for the promised land that God has been promising to them. Um, and the theme of dominion of the land is so integral to the book that even the structure of the book is largely about taking dominion of that piece of land. So even the, the very outline and structure is based on um, the, the theme of dominion. Dempster writes about this structure as, as well as many other biblical theologians. I, I counted, I think, five I read this week that, that all noticed the same pattern. Josh Philpot, who, who wrote um, the study notes in the NIV Grace and Truth Study Bible, has the, pretty much the exact same outline as Dempster. Um, Philpot, who was, by the way, I think, former pastor of our own Blake and Candace Johnson, so I felt like I knew him when I was reading it because he pastored y'all. Um, where, where was he, pastor? Founders? Founders Baptist Church. Um, but Philpot's outline is this. So chapters 1 through 5 deals with the crossing over into the land. Chapters 6 through 12 record the taking of the land. Chapters 13 through 21 recount the, the apportioning of the land. And chapters 22 through 24 conclude the book with a call to serve in the land. So notice those words associated with the land, right? Crossing over, taking, apportioning, and serving. And Dempster observes, again, following this, the same pattern that we see from many other Old Testament scholars, that, that these same Hebrew words are key words that are prevalent in each of these sections, and each of these outline sections, that, that key the reader, when we're reading this, to that theme of dominion. So, the, we'll just key in on some of these, the same words. So chapters 1 through 5, the key verb in this section is the Hebrew word abar. Abar, which means passing over, crossing over. The emphasis in the use of this word is on, on Israel crossing over the Jordan to get to the land of promise. And so we see this word repeated in the text. In chapters 6 through 11, the, the key repeated word is lacha, lacha, which means taking, and it describes Israel's taking of the land, of their, of their conquest of the land. Chapters 12 through 22 frequently uses the word halak, halak, which means divided or apportioned. And, it, and it, interestingly, I don't know the meaning of this, but it's, uh, it's extremely connected to the linguistically similar to the word 
lacha, right, from the section before, actually it's just the, it has a, the, the Hebrew letter he, which would be kind of like our H, just attached to the word lacha. So there's probably some PhD somewhere that has written something about this connection, but I can't make it. But it's just interesting to note. Um, so yeah, the, so this section of the book is, is dedicated right to the apportioning of the land that's divided to the Israelite tribes. In the final section, 23 through 24, we see the word abad, which means serve, and, and again emphasizes the call on Israel to serve the land that the Lord has just given them. And I just want to take a moment to, to take a step back and recognize just how brilliant this is by the author, just the literary brilliance of this, that this structure in Joshua and the use of these different words that are, are purposefully utilized in, in different portions of the narrative that convey to us meaning right, of that section of the text. Right? And, and the priority theme of dominion. Right? He, he, he's not explicitly going out of his way to say, this part is about service of the land. Right? He's using these, these linguistic keys um, and connections for us to discover the meaning of the text. Does that make sense? So if you take nothing else away from, from this study, I think one of the most important things I'm trying to prove to you guys is that our Bibles are beautifully constructed and brilliantly constructed. God did not provide us with just some dull technical instruction manual about morality or even about his saving purposes in humanity. But these books are brilliant, brilliant pieces of literature with so much depth and, and points of connection and, and layers of meaning that I would argue we could not possibly be bored with our reading of the scriptures of if we're, if we're reading it rightly, right? And so that's one of my main, uh, one of our main goals in this study is to help us give the, the tools and the, the keys to understanding the text rightly, to, to reading the, the narrative accounts rightly. Um, so Dempster also argues that the, the dominion theme is found in several events and passages throughout the book of Joshua which is obvious, right, because it's a book about the conquest of the land. So we're not going to go through all of these. Um, but first, let's just think about Joshua 10. Joshua 10, we get an account of five Canaanite kings after they, they were defeated by the Israelite armies. There's not, I don't think this is true. I mean, there's not many kids' Sunday school stories about this, I don't think. Um, it's a pretty brutal and gruesome story. Um, the five kings ran away and hid in a cave after the defeat. And the Israelites found the kings hiding and they were brought to Joshua. Joshua makes the kings lay down on the ground prostrate and he summons the chiefs of the men of war to, to come out and, and to put their foot on the necks of these Canaanite kings. And Dempster argues this is an object lesson here of dominion, right? Dominion of Israel's, of the Israelite enemies. Joshua then kills the five kings and, and has them hung on a tree until the evening, right? It's a, it's a brutal, gruesome scene. 
And Dempster points out, if we just read this without the context of the bigger story, um, this action from Joshua can just be interpreted merely as some like barbaric practice of ancient cultural war practices or something. But in the larger context, there's pretty significant echoes of the seed of the woman crushing the, the serpent's head, having dominion over God's enemies. And again, Josh Philpot argues uh, that, that this graphic scene is a public symbol of absolute control, of absolute control. So putting a foot on your enemy's neck was a sign of complete control of that enemy. So it's as if they're making the enemy kings their footstool, which, which we see characterized, right, of the Lord doing to his enemies. So this scene, right, then is an outworking of this cosmic battle between the Lord and his son and Satan and his seed. And, and this story is a good, it, it highlights the, the, a larger theme or reality we see in the book of Joshua. And that is that the conquest itself, so the, yeah, the conquest itself, the Israelites taking of the land and the, the destroying of the Canaanites is depicted as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise of the possession of land for Abraham's descendants. Right? It, it's, it's, it's viewed as a blessing to the nation of Israel. While, on the other hand, the Canaanites' destruction, and I mean, if you read Joshua, you are well aware that that means total annihilation for the Canaanites, but we see that, that that Canaanite destruction is understood as judgment against their sin. So we see these, the, the blessing for the Israelite promise and then um, cursing um, judgment for Canaanite sin. And the Israelites are, are commanded to put the, the Canaanites under the band, meaning full eradication of everything and everyone. But it's important when reading this, which I think many modern readers can read Joshua and think it's even barbaric, wicked. I've seen arguments that God is an evil God for commanding what he does in the conquest. Um, obviously, I think we need to reject this type of thinking. I don't think that's what is happening. I mean, I know it's, God is not evil um, for what he's commanded. Because we have to remember that the Canaanites are not innocent victims in the story. They're, they're, they were an unrighteous and rebellious people that were involved in, in immoral pagan practices that were offensive to God, utterly offensive to God. And such practices required divine judgment. So God is completely just in his judgment of the wickedness of the Canaanites by his people. And so the, the land itself that the Israelites gained from this conquest, from destroying the Canaanites, is viewed as extremely positive in the book. And Dempster argues, as, as he's argued throughout this book, that the land is viewed as a new Eden, of the place from which a, a new restoration of the, of the pristine conditions of the entire creation before the, ball, before the fall can, can commence. That is how the land is described. So any questions or, or comments before moving on? Yeah.
Yeah, if anything, he, he's being gracious to them, right, in his patience of allowing this, this time. Um, yeah. So now chapters 13 through 21 of Joshua contain a lot of details and, and a meticulous description of the boundaries of the various tribes in the promised land of Canaan. And to our modern eyes, this, this may seem like um, geographical and genealogical overkill, Right, just a, a lot of details, but it's important to remember just by, by analyzing the context of the whole story so far in the Old Testament in these chapters, that, or that these chapters would have been extremely important to ancient Israelites. Right? Dempster argues this, this description describes the, the land deeds that are just not of any old land in the Middle East, right? This, this is the land deeds for the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is a really, really big deal and the point of the narrative. So that I, no wonder, right, it takes a big chunk then of the book to describe the allotment of the land to the tribes of Israel. This is the, uh, the fulfillment of a big promise and remember, at the time, this promise seemed to be in peril um, time after time because of Israelite unfaithfulness and, and the Israelite sin. But God is faithful to his word, and his, he's delivered his people into the land. He, he's apportioning the land to his people. This is a great portion of scripture of God's faithfulness. So with the positive notes we've seen through Joshua the, of the Israelites entering the land, um, we know, just like if you read Joshua, we know that all is not well in the nation. So the first thing that Dempster highlights about, about noticing how there's this tension of God's faithfulness to give the people the land, but also the people's unfaithfulness again continuing to manifest itself, um, is the military conquest of Israel. We can see this in the conquest itself. So it was a mixed bag of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And we see this clearly in the first two initial encounters with Canaanite armies. So one ended in a stunning victory, while the other ended in stunning defeat. In Joshua 6, we see that, that faithfulness to, to Yahweh led to miraculous victory at Jericho. And disobedience and unfaithfulness led to defeat at Ai in, in Joshua 7 and 8. So the point of the story is back to back, right? Dempster's saying the author's doing this intentionally to, to foreshadow, in a sense, the, that residence in the land, the Israelite residence in the land will depend upon Israelite obedience. And disobedience will mean expulsion from the land, exile from the land. And in connection with, with the idea that the land is, is, is a type of a, a, a new Garden of Eden, then disobedience by God's covenant people will lead to the same punishment as Adam and Eve's punishment, right? Exile from the land, exile from the garden, exile from the land. And in Joshua 7, it's important to note that it was the disobedience of one man, Achan, that led to a curse of the entire community. So with Jericho and Ai, and then the, the sin of Achan, we get parallel stories of obedience that is blessed and disobedience which is cursed by God. And we 
Dempstargers, we, we see this pattern played out throughout Joshua. So Israel then defeats Ai in chapter 8, and they erect um, an altar of worship to Yahweh. They copy down the law of God. They, they renew their covenantal uh, vows or, or obligations with the Lord there. And Dempster points out, interestingly, that the chronology of the narrative that, that, that this event should actually take place at the end of Joshua in the narrative. But it's positioned here in the book to underscore the importance of um, obedience to Yahweh, which leads to blessing. And then, and then in chapter 9, we see the pattern repeated where the, the Israelites' disobedience and unfaithfulness, where they, they didn't put all of the Canaanite, Canaanites under the ban, right? They, they, they didn't put, they didn't kill all of the Canaanites. And, and Joshua lets the Gibeonites live, which went against the clear command God gave for Israel. And we even see this the same dichotomy in, in the land distributions chapters, right? Verse, or chapters 13 through 21, that, that Israel did not conquer sections of the land which they were commanded to, which should indicate to us as readers when we're reading this, something isn't right here. They didn't fulfill the task. They didn't do what God has commanded. So you see there, there's a mixed bag of Israelite faithfulness and victory, and Israelite unfaithfulness, which leads to curse and punishment. But Dempster argues that the, the end of Joshua, and its place in the canon right before um, the book of Judges, indicates to the reader um, a, a foreshadowing of coming darkness for Israel, of, of very dark times for Israel. So in Joshua chapters 23 and 24, we get a pair of farewell speeches from Joshua, who's now very old. He, he, he's about to die. Right? This continues a pattern we've seen so far in the Old Testament. Right? In Genesis, we saw um, Jacob's blessing, and at the end of Deuteronomy, we saw the, uh, Moses' final word to Israel, his benediction to Israel. And now Joshua is giving his final speeches to the nation. And the first speech focuses on the, the initial success of the Israelites in their conquest of the land. And he expresses concern about kind of finishing the job about taking the land, urging the people to finish the job and take the rest of the, the land and to destroy the Canaanites. And we see the, the, the strong call from Joshua in 23.6 for them to obey the law of God and not turn away from it. And he, and he concludes the speech urging the people not to have relations with the pagan peoples of the land, for that would for surely to apostasy and exile. And the next, the, the final speech takes place at, at Shechem, where the, the people renewed their covenant with Yahweh, which we saw in Joshua 9. Um, right? We just talked about that. Joshua retells here in this speech, he retells God's mighty actions from, from all the way from Abraham to the conquest of land. Um, and the people respond positively, desiring, right? They say they desire to serve Yahweh only. It's a, it's a powerful scene. This is where we get, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, Joshua says this. And it, and, it re, it, and it leads to, I think, a 
a kind of surprising response from Joshua. Not surprising if you've been following um, the, the whole Old Testament with us so far. But just in the immediate context, it, it does seem a bit surprising. And I'm not going to read it. I'm going to read it. Um, but his response, right, I just want us to notice, his response absolutely right, right? And it's sort of a foreshadowing if we analyze the 500 years that's going to follow Joshua. So we see it in uh, Joshua 24, verse 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 just so you can get some of this context. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Right, This great bold declaration from the people, and we are going to say, Amen. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. So I think this is very reminiscent of a passage we looked at last week um, to what Moses said right at the end of his life in Deuteronomy. That the Israelites will violate God's law and be exiled because they have something wrong with them. Something wrong with their, their hearts. They have corrupt hearts. They need circumcised hearts. They need transformed hearts. And that is exactly, I think, the same message that Joshua is now telling the Israelites. And it's as if this is a a complete foreshadowing coming right before the book of Judges, right, in the context of the big story, where we will see the Israelites in that book completely fail to serve Yahweh. You see, Israel lacks the capacity to live in obedience to God and His law, to, to submit to His commandments, and thus they, 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 have, they cannot be in communion with God. They have a massive heart issue that Joshua is telling us of. They're, they're, we could say they're, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, Right? And so as the book of Judges is going, the book of Judges is then going to make this so clear to us. So you see that kind of that connection, the, the end of Joshua sets the table for what we're going to see in Judges where we see wickedness become rampant. So, but before we get to Judges, any questions, comments about Joshua? Yeah, I would just, uh, obedience or... Yeah, obedience to the law given at Sinai, the Old Covenant law. Nobody is obedient to that law. Um, well, we do see, I think we are going to see instances of obedience to the law, especially with the coming of the king, um, David. Um, but I'm not sure of what you're asking specifically. Do you understand, Blake, anybody? Candace, did Candace raise her hand? Yeah. Well, I think that you're 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 hitting on the. T- you're going to say something, Blake. 
Okay. Well, I, I think that's right, but he also, he judges um, because they have sinned. They, they fail to be obedient, right? That, that's going to happen, that has happened, that's going to happen. And then Christ is fully obedient to the law, right? To where now he, his righteousness is attributed to those who have faith in him, right? So that, that we are obedient to the law. You could think of it that way. Yes. All right, I'm going to move us on to um, Numbers, not Numbers. What, judges, thank you, Judges. Judges begins right where, where Joshua leaves off and, and continues the storyline of Joshua by, by just continuing the, the, the narrative of the conquest of land. But very quickly in the story, as we get to the end of chapter 1 of Judges, we, we start seeing the Israelites did not drive out and they did not defeat all the Canaanites. So many Canaanites' enclaves still remained in the land. The Israelites had not finished the job as Joshua pleaded them for them to do um, in his farewell speech at the end of Joshua. And again, as we're reading that, as we're reading the text, um, we need to note this and say, something's not right here. Israel did not do what they were commanded. They're not obeying God's word yet again. And it's important to note that God does not give then the nation another leader. Um, and there's this, this constant, refer- after Joshua's death, right? The Lord doesn't give Israel another leader. And there's this constant refrain that gets repeated in the book. It becomes sort of like a, a, a hook or, or main theme throughout the book. And that is, in those days, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is because in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They, they had no leader for them to lead anymore, to lead in the ways of the Lord. And so when we see Joshua's death recounted in, in Judges chapter 2, notice in verse 10, the text tells us that there arose another generation after Joshua's generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is not a good sign for the rest of the book. If this is kind of setting up the narrative we're going to see, this should indicate to us bad things are going to happen. But it's a good reminder that and the main theme of the book of Judges, which, which both Moses and Joshua predicted would occur, that the, that the people of God, the Israelites, would fail to obey him and, and turn from him. And so, the good reminder for us, I mean, I think this still applies to us today, is that when, when people do what is right in our own eyes, they don't do what is right in God's eyes. That, that is the point of this book, one of the big points of the book. And so, left to ourselves, left to themselves, people, anybody, do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Israelites illustrate that for us over and over again in the book of Judges. And Dempster argues that this note of failure we see at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is continued throughout the book as things go from from bad to worse for the nation as the narrative progresses. Dempster writes well here. He says, it's as if the ominous... Wait, no. 
It's as if the ominous canopy of darkness at the end of Joshua has settled over the landscape and judges. Right? Darkness has settled over the landscape that we've seen. And, and what we see in that is that the young nation of Israel with, with her new land is continually being oppressed by foreign enemies in this book which are actually sent by the Lord as, as punishment for covenant violation. So foreign leaders frequently occupy the land, and the Israelites face oppressions, right, like they faced in Egypt, except this time it's, it might actually be worse because it's in their own land. right? They're not in enemy territory. They're in the land that God has promised them, and God is sending enemy armies to capture them because of their unfaithfulness. Dempster argues that by the end of the book of Judges, there's no questions that the Philistines dominate Israel. Right? We see other massive failures which, which climax in, in one of the fin- final stories of Judges, which is a horrific story of, of, a, of a Levite and his concubine. We see in Judges 19.1, the author tells us that in those days when there was no king in Israel... A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. I think we as readers should just pause right there and think, what in the world is a Levite doing with a concubine? Remember, the Levites are, are the priestly class of the Israelite people, those who, who stand in, in intercession for the people and Yahweh. And a Levite having a concubine should signal to us that, that something is terribly wrong going on in, in Israel. But the story goes on, and the Levite and his concubine go down to the town of Jebus, where the, the, the men of the town get drunk, and they try to lay with the, the Levite man. And this is definitely pointing back to a story we've seen um, in Genesis. Anyone want to name it? Sodom, yes. Um, the sins at Sodom. Right, the homeowner that, that, that the Levite and his concubine and his daughter were staying at, he said, what, like, so the, the picture is the townspeople are coming, desiring the, the Levite man. And he's saying, the homeowner says, no, take his concubine instead. And so they assaulted her all night to the point of her death. It's a wicked, wicked act. And the function of it in the narrative is to say, Israel has gone so far off the deep end that their wickedness is compared to Sodom, right? That, that is the, 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 the state of their hearts at this time. And not just compared to Sodom, but are acting just like that great wicked city, the city God destroyed because of their reprehensible wickedness. So we see, right, at the, at the very end of Judges, we see a very dark, dark book for the Israelites. Now, the, the hope we see in Judges, or what Dempster calls the saving grace during this tumultuous time in Israel's history, is that God raises up these human leaders called Judges, which the book is named for, and they're raised up by the Lord to save Israel at certain points. So another indication that God will deliver his people yet again despite their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And there's a a general pattern that that is seen when we examine the narratives of the different judges. And it goes like this. So first, Israel forgets about God, and then they adopt 
pagan practices, idol worship of some form, then they're, they're punished by God in the form of a conquering nation coming into their land. Then the people repent, cry out to God for help, and is saved by a judge that God raises up. And the land experiences rest as long as the judge lives, right? They, they, they experience rest, peace. And after the judge dies, the pattern is then repeated. And the pattern is repeated often. This is the basic structure of the judge's narratives. And so the judges are portrayed as a type of human savior for Israel that is endowed with God's spirit. And, and through the spirit and the deliverance, the people and land find rest for a time. So Dempster goes through each of these judges and shows how they, they save the Israelites by conquering the enemies of the people of God. And I'll just read the, the first account of a judge, Othniel, in Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. And notice you can get a sense of this pattern here that, that you'll see throughout this book. starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishthiam, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushon Rishthiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of, of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishthiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishthiam. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And so, right. This is kind of the, the, the paradigmatic text that then we get to see the, the same pattern play out through the rest of the judges in this point of the history. So next in chapter 3, we see Ehud sticking a dagger into what the text says is a, I always found this interesting, into a very fat man, an obese man, Eglong. Um, the next we see, we see uh, Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with one ox goad, which is like a long spear-type uh, weapon. But it's a, a pretty impressive scene. One man killing 600 men sounds pretty impressive, but it's, I think it should indicate to us um, the power of the spirit that, that depended upon Shamgar. Right? It, he didn't do this on his own, obviously. Right? Then Deborah, we see in chapter 4, she destroys... The, the military superior people of the Canaanites in Judges 4 and 5. Gideon defeats the Midianites with, with only 300 troops in Judges 6 through 8. Jephthah triumphs over the Moabite armies in chapters 11 through 12. And Samson uh, destroys the Philistine pagan temple. Right? He, he, remember the story? He, he destroys the temple. He kills everybody. He kills himself. Um, and so these individuals engaged in conquest that, that resulted in temporary liberation and rest for the Israelites. 
And Dempster makes the argument that in view of the larger storyline, these stories are the, the playing out of the, of the seed of the woman establishing dominion by defeating their enemies, by defeating Israel's enemies. And all of these stories are marked with, with many details that are very obvious in the text that are indicating weakness of some kind on behalf of the judges. Right? These are not super virtuous characters, um, whether it was just immoral character or, or just think of Gideon's lack of a lot of things. He, he was not a great military leader. The, the point is clear that it wasn't the human judges and their greatness that delivered the Israelites. It was the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord. And so the structure of Judges shows us how the Israelites gradually descend into moral failure. And it climaxes in, the, in, in Samson, who particularly is what, what Dempster calls a mirror image of the nation of Israel. I think this is a pretty neat connection. Um, Dempster writes here, Samson represents his own people. So notice these connections. Samson represents his own people who had a supernatural origin, were set apart from among the nations with a distinctive vocation, broke their vows and were enamored with foreign idols until finally they lost their identity and spiritual power and became the blind slaves of their oppressors in exile. Right, so notice how, how Dempster points out the, the, some of these connections between Samson and Israel, Israel's history. Um, Dempster argues the point of that connection shows that the institution of the judges, right, this would be the, the final judge in the narrative, the institution of the judges is not finally able to, to fully help or to fully deliver the Israelites. There's, there's something is not right about the institution of the judges. Something or, or someone else is needed. And that much is clear by the end of the narrative. In the end of the book, chapters 17 through 21, there's a common refrain repeated. It says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And right, we've already recounted the, the terrible story of the Levite and his concubine. The point we see is clear. The absence of proper leadership for Israel will have devastating effects on the people of God. And the narrative of Judges makes one thing clear. Israel is in need of a lasting kingship instead of a temporary judge. A king who, like we saw in Deuteronomy 17, is a righteous leader whose whole life embodies the Torah, embodies the law of God. We could say a, a man after God's own heart. So Israel needs not, not just one who will defeat Israel's enemies, but a leader who will be a model of virtue for the people, a model of submitting to the law of God. And Dempster states such a person would give Israel more than temporary rest that we saw in the Judges. And the book ends with that, that same refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, anticipating, I would argue, a future king who will lead the people to do what is right in God's eyes, to lead the people to obey God's law. 
which is a great cliffhanger to end the book, but not a great cliffhanger for the book of Ruth, which is what (laughs) comes next in our English orderings, but a great cliffhanger for the book of Samuel, where we meet this great king. So again, more evidence I would suggest that the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament makes the most sense of the narrative as it is given to us. Before moving to Samuel, which we don't have that much time, I might just end now. But any questions or comments, I might just save the start of Samuel for two weeks. Yes, you're fast-forwarding to the, to, the, to the end. But yes, that's exactly right what's going to happen. Yeah, he doesn't make that th- that point in the book, um, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Like when you're what you're saying sounds right to me, and like points that we could be making um, in the text, and it's just good reminder. Hey, Dempster's not making every point right that we could make. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. True. I like that. So this, this study is like the arcs of the building. So then when you look at these arcs, you can think of biblical theology. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But there's a lot more in the building, right? Yes. So there's a lot to mine and to study. And I encourage you to do what, what John just did and just kind of mine the text and, and read it and reread it and read it and reread it um, to get to these stories. Um, anything else? I think we'll just... Pause on Samuel till we get back. Um, we are not meeting next week because of a holiday um, that I always forget the name of. Memorial Day. Memorial Day, not Labor Day. Okay, so you guys are dismissed, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Well, you're going to be here next week for, for service, but in the Sunday school in a couple weeks.